Scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 16, 1 through 8. The word of God speaks to us like this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the very word of God to us. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, Cindy. Good morning. Happy Easter. I hope you all are doing well. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and, uh, and so if you're a guest with us, welcome. We'd really love to, to get to know you. And I want to say, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. It, it means a lot. I do want to address uh, one of these typical phrases that I really dislike in our culture that, that says, like, Easter's the Super Bowl of, of the Christian calendar. And I just want to push on that because you don't have a Super Bowl every day, but the resurrection is actually what sustains us every Every day as believers. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, literally, if what we're talking about today didn't happen in history, historically, we're wasting our time. That, that, that's the claim. The claim we're making is that if Jesus didn't actually raise up out of that tomb, we're wasting our time right here this morning. We might as well go get an early brunch. But actually, I and, 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 and the believers here believe that Jesus is alive. Not just spiritually alive, physically alive. And that is a profound truth that shapes all of life. And so here's what I want to say is there's a, there's a particular kind of danger in a day like Easter where we allow sentimentality and trivialities to actually to pull our attention away from the profound implications of the resurrection. And so I hope you have an awesome day. I hope it's full of lots of pastels, awesome brunch and pastries, and some great Easter egg finds for your kids. I really hope you have a lot of fun. Um, but I also hope that this is a day in which you slow down for just a moment and ask, if Jesus is alive, what does that mean for my life? So that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you because I need and we need the Holy Spirit to actually speak to us that we might see Jesus as he is. So Jesus, would you speak to us this morning? Would you speak to my friends? Would you speak to my heart as we look at this passage in Mark? A passage that is a little mystifying. And maybe not what we're used to expecting on a day full of pastel colors. But I pray that this would be a, a, a way in which, or a, a moment in which you speak to our hearts and teach us how to see you, teach us how to worship, and teach us how to trust. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world full of profound pain and brokenness, don't we? I mean, all we have to do is look at particular moments like this, the, the images coming out of Ukraine right now are devastating. They're devastating to watch the pain and the hurt and the death, the fear that's happening in that moment. But there's, but there's not just these particular moments like this. There's just a steady hum, isn't there? 
Like when you stop and, and reckon with the sobriety of this statement, every single day infants that should be beginning life die. Every single day people are abused and taken advantage of. Every single day loved ones are robbed from us. Every single day there's just this steady hum of pain in the world. Romans, Paul, Paul puts it this way. He talks about not just us groaning, but that creation groans with the pain. In all of this, it drives us to carry these existential anxieties. What do we do with the pain? And yet in the midst of this groaning, in the midst of this pain, it, 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 it's almost as if we continue to lift our eyes up and hope for something better, right? Right? We're looking for something that's actually beautiful. We're looking for something that's actually good, that's actually life-giving. We're yearning towards something that actually transcends this meddling, muddling experience that we have in life. I, I think this is actually why art is so central to the human experience. That there's something in art that's trying to reach for something that we, we want and long for, but we can't always see. And so what we do is we live pulled between these two poles. We live our life pulled between the pain and the brokenness and the things that we feel and experience and that others around us feel and experience, and yet we feel pulled towards something greater, something of hope, something beautiful. We live in the gap between these two things, and these, this, gap, this gap pulls us in a way that almost feels impossible to maintain over time. It leads to this increasing weight of existential anxieties. It, it, it drives us to try to save ourselves, to either rescue ourselves from the pain that could be there and somehow bring utopia to my life or to my friend's life or to the world. Like, I can do it until you can't, right? We strive to save ourselves and then we find it fail. All our attempts fail and they fall flat. And so at this point, we got nothing left but diversion and distraction. Diversion and distraction. Whether it's running to kind of cheap sentimentality, I don't mean to knock it, but I mean the Hallmark Channel. Like this, this, this nice, soft, cuddly experience, we're going to deny the hard things and we're going to aspire to something else. Or maybe it's just an unchallenged skepticism. I don't believe that those things exist and I'm not going to allow you to challenge me. Maybe it's just numbed out consumerism. Let's get Uber Eats to deliver a pizza. Let's sit down with Netflix. Let's just imagine the world fades into the existence. Or I think worse yet, and in a particular danger in our particular place here right now in Canadian County, is this, is this domesticated religiosity where we act religious on Sundays, but we've domesticated it. We keep it out of our lives so it can't actually touch the way that I live my life. There's this sense in which we are striving to block out the blazing sun of the challenges of life with distraction and trivialities. I think Julie Beck in an article in The Atlantic a couple years ago put it best when she says this, Americans are the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of french fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a flamethrower. I mean, isn't that, isn't that us? Isn't that us? You see, because we're, laugh, we're left asking this question, is there any answer to the gap that we feel? Is there, any, is there any answer to this solution? It is this very place, though, that our text in Mark speaks. That it's this 
passage in Mark that speaks to this particular moment. And I want us to look at this text, and I want us to look at, uh, at a couple of things in this. I want us to look at three agonizing questions. I want us to look at three confounding answers. And I want to look at three unexpected reactions. Three agonizing questions, three confounding answers, three unexpected reactions. And to get started, we're actually going to look a little bit earlier in Mark. So pull out your Bibles go to Mark 15, verse 42. And this is what is in Mark right before the passage that Cindy just read. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also uh, himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and he summoned the centurion, and he asked him whether he was already dead. And, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse, listen to that word, the corpse, to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I want you to take just a second. I want you to listen to the questions of the text. I don't mean the questions that are in the text. I mean the questions of the text. Can you imagine? Can you put yourself in the position right now of the disciples? Can you put yourself in the, the shoes of Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Jesus, or, or of Mary, his mother? Can you hear the questions they're asking? I, I don't know all the questions that are rolling through their head, but there's a, there's a few that I think had to have been there, and one of them is this. Why does death always seem to win? Why does death always seem to win? I mean, Joseph is going, going to the ruler and asking for the corpse of the one that he once called Messiah. He then takes him and puts him in a tomb full of other dead, uh, dead, uh, other dead bodies or in the place where all these other dead bodies are. And he rolls this heavy stone over the entrance to block it out. And there's this swift finality to all of his hopes. This one who had promised life is now dead. Matter of fact, this is the one who actually raised a little girl and their friend Lazarus back to life. And they're waiting at the edge of the cross. I think it's fascinating that Mark records it this way, that they were waiting at the end of the edge of the cross to see if he might save himself or even if Elijah might come and save him. But at this moment, there's no hope of him being saved. He's dead. And they're asking the question, why does death always seem to win. You see, his followers have scattered to the four winds, and here come a few ladies. Listen, they come with spices. Why? They don't come to expect a life body. They come to simply slow the decay of the corpse of the one that used to be their friend. They just want to delay the inevitable. In a world swirling in death, they're left asking, is that all there is to life. I think there's a second question that they're asking at this moment, though. Is there any such thing as transcendent beauty in the world? 
You see, when Jesus be, walked and came into Galilee and they, they met him and they began to see the things he did, they saw the healings that he gave, they, they heard the freedom in his message, they, they were introduced to a beauty they had never experienced before. They were introduced or, or caught up into something that transcended anything they had ever seen or heard before. And they're, they're caught up in the wonder and the hope that comes up with that. And now they're asking, was it all just an illusion? Was it all just a game? Is transcendent beauty to be put in the same category as care bears, unicorns, and world peace? You know, things that don't exist. Which I think leads to a third question. Is hope merely a mirage? You know that thing that you look like you can see until you get close and you realize it's not there. I can't imagine that the disciples weren't at some point asking this question inside. Did we just get scammed by a huckster selling us a bill of goods? Did we just not get caught up in the delusions of a crazy man with a Messiah complex? Because this man promised all kinds of hope and now he's dead in a tomb. It's really profound in the Gospel of John when the, the disciple Thomas, he hears stories that Jesus has come back from the dead, right? He hears from the disciples, we saw Jesus. And he goes, I won't believe it until I touch the wounds on his hand. Now, we, we push Thomas off and call him Doubting Thomas as if we wouldn't have done the same thing. Because there's actually something healthy in Thomas's response. There's a way in which he goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not falling for this again. Unless I can actually see him alive, I won't believe. You see, in the face of all these questions, and the disciples scattered, they're left with nothing but profound and the, the profound and devastating silence of the God they thought loved them. But into this space, listen to me, into this space come a series of confounding answers. I say confounding because they're, they're neither the answers the disciples expected nor the ones they hoped for, but they were the answers the disciples needed. Look at Mark 16. This is the first six verses of what we just read. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. I love this little addition. It was very large. <laughs> it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Listen to this. He has risen. He's not here. And then he points and goes, see the place where they laid him? I love this. But what's fascinating is their answer, the answer that they received to their questions is not so much in a word as in a presence. It's not so much in a word as it is in a presence. It's, it's, it's as if Jesus' absent body from the tomb actually speaks to his presence with them. They will encounter his resurrected body very soon. But in this moment, the resurrected Christ, the fact of his resurrection, confronts them in the place of death. So while they're asking the question, is death when? 
It's in that place that Jesus' resurrection speaks. No, it doesn't. You see, he had told them three different times that he was going to rise again. Look through Mark. You see three times in the the months ahead. He goes, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise. And you know what? Not one of his disciples was sitting at the edge of the tomb, throwing popcorn in his mouth, just waiting for the fireworks. Not one of them. But they come instead to find a rotting corpse. But what they find is a messenger saying he's no longer dead, he's alive. And there's some strange sense in which his ab- the absence of his body means that his presence is with them in a radically new way. He meets them in the very place of their deepest despair. We also see that, that he, he brings the confounding answer to the question of beauty in the fact that the resurrected Jesus displays beauty in the place of horror. In, in the place that, that haunts their nightmares that their hopes are dead, that in the very place of horror, beauty is spoken. He's no longer dead. Death doesn't get the last word, folks. In the place of darkness stands this messenger of light. And in the place of death, they hear the message of life. And it's here in the ugliness of this tomb, in this place of death, that they begin to catch a glimpse of the beauty of the transcendent one. And in their questions for hope, in their their longing for hope, the resurrected Jesus offers them hope in the place of despair. You see, it's right here in this place where all of their hopes died that hope is reborn. Hope is spoken. Hope is offered by the resurrected Jesus. You see, if death doesn't win, maybe hope isn't an illusion after all. Maybe, Maybe our hopes are not lost And what's fascinating is what happens when you watch the disciples encounter the living Christ in in the other gospel accounts. You see Peter transformed by a meal with the resurrected Jesus on a beach. You, You find Thomas himself, the one who said, I won't believe unless I touch, who encounters the risen Christ and now takes off to the east. And many of us believe that Southeast Asia, the church in Southeast Asia was started by this disciple who doubted. But he encountered a living being who was dead. And Paul, who was an enemy of the church, who was literally on a mission to go and, and, and crush other disciples and to try to crush the gospel, is encounter, it has an encounter with the risen Christ and his entire trajectory of his life is transformed. And not to one of prosperity, but to one of pain. But there's something that I mentioned this earlier that I think we've got to watch and be careful of in our understanding of Easter. Because there's this way in which sentimentality will make us think of Easter as this cute, fluffy thing. When in reality, this scene is far from cute and pristine. It's like a shaky camera, grainy film of people running away in fear. And so I want us to look at their reaction because I don't think we expect this reaction. I actually love the way that Mark ends this passage because he doesn't give us cute and cuddly bunnies. He gives us a radically different view of what's happening. Look at, verse, or look at Mark 16, starting in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were, listen to this word, alarmed. 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, what did they do? Run off and told the disciples, look, we found Jesus. No. It says, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. These are three radically unexpected responses, isn't it? Because if we're used to Easter trivialities, we're used to, we're used to this image of these ladies uh, like falling down and worshiping and in this light coming from somewhere like a Thomas Kincaid uh, picture and, and, and these bright colors and happy responses and joy, look, Jesus is resurrected. And this gives us this picture in which they're alarmed, not amazed, alarmed. If he said amazed, you might imagine like a little child for their first visit to the circus, like eyes wide open, bringing in all the sights and sounds, but that's not what's happening here. They're alarmed. They're concerned. Jesus had told them three times he would raise from the dead, but none of them believed I want to hit a notion where that sometimes we have believed that we as Westerners, a people of science and a people of reason and rationality, don't, we can't believe in the resurrection, but those people back then were like uber religious and they believe anything and, and they would believe in resurrections. And I just want to say quite, that's just historical nonsense. If you look at the ideologies of the day, nobody expected resurrection. Nobody. The Jews didn't believe in bodily resurrection. The Greeks certainly didn't. Nor did his disciples, even after they heard Jesus say he would be resurrected, none of them believed it. This is not them filling up their, these fanciful ideas that they had always imagined. This is them being confronted, accosted by a reality. They show up to honor and respect the dead corpse, and instead, they find a living Christ. See, the disciples didn't have a category for this resurrection. That's why they are left in utter astonishment and bewilderment. It's like Neo waking up in the real world out of the matrix for the first time. He's alarmed. But in addition to being alarmed, they were afraid. So why are they responding with fear when, rather than ecstatic joy? Why is it that fear is what's driving this? Well, this isn't, let's, let's say what this fear isn't. This isn't fear like in The Walking Dead where, oh, there was a being and now it was dead and now it's up and walking around. Let's be scared. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of fear when your entire world gets upended. We're talking about the kind of fear with everything you thought you understood just got disproven. But there's also a deeper kind of fear here. And it's the fear of staring the ferocity of profound power in the face. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. It's this allegorical picture of, uh, of the gospel and of our relationship to Christ. And, and in this case, uh, in, in this story, uh, Jesus, the fi- the, Jesus is figured by uh, a lion named Aslan. And, and these, these, cre- these, these young children are just hearing about Aslan for the first time, and they're talking to Mr. Beaver. Like I said, it's allegory. He is actually a beaver named Mr. Beaver. And they ask him, like, whoa, Aslan's a lion? Like, should we be scared? Is he safe is their question. Lucy's question, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver goes, safe? He's a lion. No, he's not safe. But he's good. 
You see, what he recognizes in this moment is that there is a profound power. Because what happens when you confront the one that just defeated death? Fear. That's what happens. Fleming Rutledge puts it this way in one of her sermons in a, in a book called The Undoing of Death. She says, this is a very peculiar way to end the gospel. Some additional verses were added later, but most interpreters now believe that Mark meant to conclude this way. The news of the resurrection caused the women to run headlong from the scene. Then I love this. Maybe, maybe this image would, would convey uh, the, the message better than the usual one of women kneeling reverently and peacefully bathed in rays of sunrise. Maybe the best Easter card would show the women hurtling pell-mell out of the empty tomb, terrified. I love that. They're afraid. They're also deeply uncertain. Deeply uncertain. We've alluded to it, uh, and you can listen to this podcast where we talk about, because in some of your Bibles, you see a verse 9 to 20, and you're like, what about these? Well, it has long been believed by scholars that, based on studying the ancient manuscripts, that these were actually later editions by scribes, and it's no wonder that somebody tried to add it, because who likes the ending at verse 8? You're kind of like, ah, surely there's something else. And so, you know, these scribes are reading Matthew, and they're reading the end of Luke, and they're reading John, and they're like, maybe we can just cobble these things together and give it a happy ending. But I think there's something profound in the way that Mark ends this passage. He starts the book with this just startling beginning, and he ends it with a startling end. And I think, I think what's happening here is Mark is signaling here that the end is actually not the end, it's a beginning. He knows the rest of the story, and he wouldn't be writing this gospel if there wasn't the rest of the story of his disciples encountering the risen Christ, of of Jesus himself appearing to them and then ascending to heaven. This wouldn't even exist without this. But there's this simple way in which we're left with this anticipation of what's to come. This anticipation of what's to come. But it hinges, listen to me very carefully, it hinges on a very stark either or. Either Jesus died stayed dead, and his corpse rotted and disintegrated in a tomb somewhere or in a ditch somewhere, or his body is still alive, his heart is still beating. And if that's the case, everything is different. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not cheap religious sentimentality. It's either he's dead or he's alive, friends. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You see, it's right here that we find ourselves, if we're honest, confronting a reality that's not easy to swallow, but it's, it's the only hope that we have, this either or. That Jesus wasn't raised spiritually, he was raised bodily. But let's just, let's just dispense with the idea that we can just put pastel colors on everything and clean it up. Let's deal with the raw reality. And I love the way that, that, uh, that William Williman says it in his book, Undone by Easter. He says, it's as if the gospel accounts of Easter try not to give encouragement to those who attempt to make Jesus' resurrection an otherworldly spiritual experience. Because you'll hear this often, right? You'll hear this idea that, well, he just raised spiritually. No, no, no. He says, the Gospels present the resurrection of Jesus as a political event. That which happens here, now, in the Gospel mix of fear, of misapprehension, of evening meals and locked doors, 
of breakfast on the beach and the disciples' sexist unwillingness to believe the testimony of women. God's new age has broken into the present time, our time. And the first to get the news were not good, spiritually perceptive people. They were people like us. We do not live in a perpetual state of pious Eucharistic adoration. Our our world is the dreary world of breakfast, soggy cornflakes, doubt, and fear. We gather in your church and in mine, not with spiritually perceptive, fully believing, undoubting Christians. We gather with those who, when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, are convinced that Caesar calls the shots. And we're as clueless as Simon Peter, shocked and utterly unprepared that the risen Christ should appear to a loser like him. Can we face the reality of this resurrection? Because listen to me, friends. If Jesus is alive, and I think he is, I know he is, I believe he is, then Caesar doesn't get the last word. The Roman authorities don't get the last word. The Jewish leaders don't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. Your fear doesn't get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. But we're a lot like the disciples. They doubted and we doubt. They feared and we fear. They misunderstood and we don't understand. But also like them, listen, we are invited into an encounter with the living Jesus. Not merely the spiritually alive Jesus, but the physically alive Jesus. If you're here and you call yourself a Christian, I, I, I pray that today that the Spirit of God would awaken you to those ways in which you have domesticated the resurrection and have not wrestled with the full implications on your life. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to implore you to take these claims seriously. I mean it very seriously. Either he's dead or he's alive and it makes all the difference in the world. This is not a can you can just keep kicking down the field for a little while longer and try to have your cake and eat it too. The reality of the resurrection demands a response. Will you believe him and trust him or will you not? And so I'm going to say to you, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to implore you to hear the word of scripture. Jesus died for you. Jesus was raised for you. And Jesus is coming to you. Today is the day of salvation for those that believe and for those that have not yet believed. Let me pray.